Welcome to the Oxford University podcast series. Today we're going to be talking about cognitive impairment or dementia. This is brought to you by Daniel Morn and Charlotte Allen. We're both advanced trainees or registrars in, in psychiatry in the Oxford Deanery and also affiliated with Oxford University. So as I said, we are going to talk about cognitive impairment. And well, this is a very big topic and uh, I think it could be quite uh, well difficult to to begin to speak about because there's so many different facets of it. So, Charlotte, maybe you can begin by, well, maybe just introducing this subject by telling us how important it is. We live in an ageing population, and this means that there's a significant proportion of the population over the age of 65. So this group forms a significant part of the caseload in primary care, and two-thirds of inpatients in general hospitals are over 65. Because cognitive impairment is common in this age group, whatever specialty medical students end up working in, they need to be familiar with the core elements of it. Yes, I mean, it's often a subject talked about in the news, isn't it, with the ageing population, and I think with the increasing demands on society are often discussed in the media. I think it is a, a very relevant topic to any, any medic, really, anybody engaging with any form of health care to be aware of cognitive impairment and its, its ramifications. So, um, well, what's the timescale for chronic cognitive impairment? Because if we're talking about an ageing population, is it, is it something which just sort of suddenly happens when you reach a certain age? Or what, how does it present? What does it look like? It develops over a number of months. So that's in contrast to delirium, which develops over a few days. And for a diagnosis of dementia, the symptoms need to have been present for at least six months. And so you mentioned symptoms there. What, what are the symptoms? The symptoms include multiple cognitive deficits. So it's not just about memory, it's about um, impairment on many cognitive functions. Classically, we think about the four A's. So amnesia, aphasia, apraxia and agnosia. Can you just tell us what each one of those things are. I know amnesia is, uh, you know, re- reduced memory or impaired memory. Yep. Amnesia is about short-term memory. Aphasia relates to language difficulties. Apraxia is difficulty sequencing actions. And agnosia is a difficulty with recognising objects. So agnosia might be a bit like uh, Dr Sack's novel, uh, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Yes, that's right. Or to give a more simple example, it might be if you give somebody a key to hold and ask them what it is, they wouldn't be able to say that feel it and to know that it was a key. Right, thank you. In addition to those cognitive deficits, um, for a diagnosis of dementia, people also have to have functional impairment. And, and what do you mean by functional impairment? What does that look like? That means a difficulty doing their day-to-day activities, so getting dressed cooking food, remembering appointments, reading, writing, maybe difficulties with conversation. It's the practical day-to-day stuff. Right. And we talked about the fact that this is a chronic condition. Could, could there be an acute presentation in dementia? The symptoms of dementia can be exacerbated by acute illness, and people with dementia are more vulnerable to getting delirium. But the key is in the history So unlike delirium, people with dementia would have had the symptoms for many months before the acute illness started. 
that the new symptoms wouldn't be precipitated by the illness. Right, I understand. So there are many different types of dementia, aren't there? And I think many of us are, are common, uh, know the common ones, for instance, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but maybe you could just maybe you could just outline the, the main different types of dementia for us. There are four main types that we're going to talk about today. So Alzheimer's disease, you're right, is the most common, is important to think about. There's also vascular dementia, Lewy body dementia and frontotemporal dementia. Okay, so should we start with Alzheimer's? Yes. And, 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 and talk about that. Uh, so how, how is it by far the most common and, and what, what, how does that present? What, what, what's the cause of it? It is the most common. The most prominent feature is short-term memory impairment, so that's amnesia. As the condition develops, there might be a loss of longer-term memory, as well as other cognitive symptoms, such as aphasia and apraxia. The key to remember is that Alzheimer's isn't just about memory impairment, but about a broader cognitive impairment. So patients might have problems with language, with perception, attention constructional abilities, orientation and problem-solving. They might also have a range of non-cognitive symptoms. So this includes mood and personality changes, things like apathy. They might also get delusions, hallucinations and sleep disturbance. You've got quite a range of symptoms there, actually. That's right. That might fit with the fact that it's quite a a sort of globalised... In its, in its sort of later stages, it becomes a sort of globalised uh, cerebral disease, is that right? That's correct. It's also associated with a range of neuropsychiatric um, comorbidities, I suppose. So depression is very common in dementia. It's seen in 25 to 30% of people. Anxiety is seen in, in up to 30%. And people get sort of apathy and psychotic symptoms, as I mentioned before. Right. And just to go back, we were talking about cognitive impairment. I guess maybe some people aren't familiar with the term cognition or cognitive. How would you describe that, that term? And it's sort of, as I understand it, it's sort of something to do with the, the sort of the higher functionings of the brain. Have you, have you got a, a sort of a good way of understanding that? I suppose I've talked about the deficits that you can get. And if you think about the reverse of that, then that's what cognition is. Cognition are the higher functionings of the brain relating to language, to memory, um, orientation, all those types of things. How do you diagnose Alzheimer's disease? Classically, a definite diagnosis can only be made at autopsy. And at autopsy in the brain, you'd see amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles, which are made of tau protein. And those are visible throughout the whole cortex. But obviously, you can't wait for autopsy to make a diagnosis. And so there are various clinical criteria which help clinicians to make a diagnosis during somebody's life. It can be diagnosed clinically based on certain criteria, So where there's dementia on clinical assessments, where the symptoms are progressive, where more than two areas of cognition are affected, and where the symptoms start between the ages of 40 or 90. And in addition to this, there needs to be functional impairments and no other explanation for the changes. Right, and so so what I'm understanding here is that a definite diagnosis can only be made at autopsy, but... 
There are very likely diagnoses made on clinical grounds, looking at what the patient is able to do and what they're unable to do, yeah. and making it sort of a, a, a general a, a diagnosis, but not a definite one. So, are there any, are there any neuroimaging tests, any scans that we can do to help make us more sure about what's going on? There are, and neuroimaging is a, <coughs> a key part of an assessment of somebody with dementia. On CT scans or MRI scans, you can see generalised atrophy, which is common in Alzheimer's, and also specifically you get hippocampal atrophy, so that can be seen on imaging. There are also new amyloid imaging techniques, which actually allow you to visualise the amyloid plaques in the brain, so similar to the sorts of neuropathological tests you'd be able to do at autopsy, and that actually might help make an accurate diagnosis. Wow, so that's, that's interesting. There are imaging techniques which can actually identify the specific pathology of the Alzheimer's. That's right. That's, that's interesting. What causes Alzheimer's disease then? We've talked a bit about amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. Are, they, are, there, are there other sort of more specific genetic causes? There are. In a very small number of people who get early onset Alzheimer's disease, genetic factors are clearly causal and there seems to be an autosomal dominant pattern of inheritance. There are three genes that have been that are inherited in this way. So the gene for amyloid precursor protein on chromosome twenty one, then presenilin one on chromosome fourteen, and presenilin two on chromosome one. But I will stress that it's really a very small percentage of people with Alzheimer's who actually have this autosomal dominant pattern of disease. Right. In late onset Alzheimer's disease, which affects the majority of people, the ApoE4 gene increases the risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. So it doesn't determine who gets it, but it just increases the risk and lowers the age at onset. But overall, age is the most predictive factor for who gets Alzheimer's disease. Other things that are relevant are um, people with vascular comorbidities have an increased risk, and people who get depression are also increased risk. So those are, th are things to look out for. At the other side of the coin, um, a higher educational level protects against Alzheimer's disease, and the theory is that if you've got a greater cognitive reserve, then you can tolerate the cognitive deficits and find alternative coping strategies for a longer period. That's a really helpful overview, actually, of the different causes. So there are actually a number of different causes, not a number of different genetic causes, actually, yes. but the specific uh, genetic causal mechanisms in, in early... Alzheimer's disease are quite different to the, the risk factors of some the genetic contribution in later onset. That's right, yeah. But what about <laughs> vascular dementia then? Because um, that's a very, another very common dementia. How do, what does that, is that, is that quite a different presentation to Alzheimer's? There's a lot of overlap with all the different presentations of dementia, but there are certain features that make it different and it's important to look out for. To make a diagnosis of vascular dementia, a patient needs to have cerebrovascular disease, which is either evident clinically or on neuroimaging. And in addition to this, they need to have cognitive and functional impairments, and there needs to be a clear relationship between the cerebrovascular disease and the cognitive and functional impairments. So an example of this would be if somebody has a stroke 
and then develops cognitive and functional changes, then that's likely to be a vascular dementia. Classically, because you can get vascular changes which happen quite suddenly, patients present with a stepwise deterioration. So you, they'll go along at a certain level, there'll be a sudden change in either cognition or behaviour, and things will carry on at that level before another sudden change. Is there a sense in which you can, you can see the, the degree of the impairment, the cognitive impairment, by looking at the degree of cerebrovascular disease, generally speaking? Generally speaking, if you've got... Um, more cerebrovascular disease, you're likely to have more cognitive impairments. And specifically looking at uh, the uh, specific neurological deficit, which you wouldn't expect in Alzheimer's, I understand it mostly, but in, in uh, vascular dementia, you might expect some specific uh, neuro, 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 neurological deficit, for instance, maybe an expressive dysphasia or something, something That's like right. that. So you can have difficulty with actually naming quite specific things. So you can get these specific language deficits. Yes, and that would be represented on the imaging as well. Yes. That's interesting. Okay, so we're looking at much more stepwise change and very much related to cerebrovascular damage on the scans. That's helpful. So what about the, the, the uh, characteristic features of Lewy body dementia? What, what's, what are, what's particular here in this condition? Lewy body Dementia is characterised by a, a fluctuating cognition. People get quite a lot of rapid change in their cognition, they get visual hallucinations, and they get Parkinsonism. They might also have a REM sleep disorder, and they have severe neuroleptic sensitivity. And although they do get memory loss, the anterior-grade anterior memory loss might not be as prominent as in other types of dementia. So, and, and what you mean by anterior grade memory loss is the laying down of new memories. That's right. Yes. Okay, and and just so so we're aware, there's quite a that, that triad of symptoms is quite particular to Lewy body, isn't it? The fluctuating cognition. Sometimes they can be okay, and sometimes they're really quite just well impaired by their, their their cognitive difficulties, and the visual hallucinations and the Parkinsonism. That's quite a a distinctive triad, really. Yes, and I think you you can see that. This is quite a good differential diagnosis for delirium because, again, you've got the fluctuating cognition and the visual hallucinations, which are common in delirium. And the key to a diagnosis here is really thinking about the history. How long has this been going on for, or is it an acute change? So we, it's called Lewy body dementia. What are Lewy bodies? Well, they're inclusion, inclusions which are found within neurons, so neuronal inclusions... And they're composed of abnormally phosphorylated proteins called ubiquitin and alpha-synuclein. In Lewy body dementia, these Lewy bodies are found throughout the brain um, in many structures, including the paralimbic and neocortical structures. And so because they're found throughout the brain, you can actually do neuroimaging to help with the diagnosis. And you get changes on SPECT and PET scans, which are quite characteristic of Lewy body dementia. Um, but we're moving on swiftly because we, we do have a number of different types of dementia to cover in this podcast. How does frontotemporal dementia differ again? In frontotemporal dementia, there's a very early decline in interpersonal skills and a change in behaviour. Characteristically, people get disinhibition, hyperorality, so that might put a lot of things in their mouths. They might be inflexible and have poor personal hygiene. 
and patients frequently show a very early loss of insight and a difficulty with expressing emotions. Speech might change, so they might commonly have echolalia or perseveration where they repeat the same sentence repeatedly. And they can have physical signs such as primitive reflexes or incontinence. It seems that frontotemporal dementia is, well, at least in the early stages, uh, what predominates is a personality change or behaviour change. So somebody who has been behaving maybe normally for them suddenly has quite a dramatic change in in the way, the way they are. I mean, is it sudden or is it sort of a gradual thing? It's gradual, again. Correct. But I think it can be difficult to to know what's going on if somebody's having a very gradual personality change. It might be that it's not recognised immediately or people think somebody's just behaving strangely and it's only when things have got a little bit worse that it's easier to, to piece the jigsaw together and to work out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Often in front of temporal dementia, people develop the symptoms in their mid to late 50s, so it happens a little bit earlier than other types of dementia, and that can make it more difficult to diagnose at first. Thank you. Are there any other causes of dementia that you you think we we should mention here? Well, there are quite a lot of other causes of dementia. But I'll just mention some of the reversible causes, because it's important to think about those. So B12 deficiency, hypothyroidism, and normal pressure hydrocephalus are all things that if you detect, you might be able to treat and to reverse the dementia symptoms. The classic symptoms of normal pressure hydrocephalus are gait apraxia, cognitive impairment, and incontinence. And some people who develop this can actually have surgery, which can um, stop the symptoms getting worse and actually improve people's presentation. Right. And and so so there are some reversible causes, but what about some of the rarer causes of dementia? Well, these are things like prion disease, Huntington's disease, and multiple sclerosis. So those are rare, but you do come across them, and it's important to think about them as part of the differential diagnosis. Okay, thank you. I'm right in understanding that prion disease is along the lines of CJD. That's right, yes. So there are some inherited forms of prion disease, but it can also be acquired, um, and it can just occur sporadically. Okay. So let's move on from defining the different types of dementia to uh, the principles of assessment. If we have a patient who we are suspecting of of dementia, what what are the... the, uh, the steps of of the assessment we should go through? If dementia is suspected, then patients should be referred to a memory clinic. At a memory clinic, they'd have a history, and a careful history is really important and needs to include a collateral history. They'd also have investigations to identify any potentially treatable causes of cognitive impairment. These are things like depression, delirium, vitamin deficiencies stroke and tumours. The investigations would include blood tests for full blood counts, ESR, use and ease, liver function tests, thyroid function, B12, folate, glucose and cholesterol. So we're looking to identify the causes of dementia and also to think about potentially modifiable risk factors. Neuroimaging is important so you need either a CT or an MRI scan to include some, to sorry to exclude some of the other causes, 
and a thorough cognitive assessment is really essential. This needs to assess all the key cognitive domains and at a minimum it would include something like an MMSE or a MOCA followed by a CLOCKS and an HVLT. So CLOCKS test factor on a CLOCK, but what's the yeah. HVLT? HVLT is a Hopkins verbal learning test. Um, that's a, you have to learn a list of 12 words and you repeat those, you do that three times. So it's quite a, a difficult test and can be quite good at trying to distinguish some of the different types of dementia and whether or not somebody actually has a dementia. Okay, thank you. Mm. What options are available for management? Because often we see dementia as something which is quite difficult to treat and we can quite easily lose hope as, as, as maybe well, members of the general public can have this perception that there's not much to do. But what, what as clinicians can, are we able to, to achieve in people with dementia? The management of, de of dementia really depends on the stage of dementia. So it very much needs to be tailored towards the individual. At present, there's no cure for Alzheimer's disease and other dementias, and the focus of care is to reduce the symptoms and to enable patients to live healthy, fulfilling lives for as long as they can. There is medication available to delay the progression of the cognitive difficulties, and cholinesterase inhibitors are useful for mild to moderate, dement moderate Alzheimer's dementia and Lewy body dementia. And the glutamate antagonist, memantine, is useful for moderate to severe dementia. As well as medication, psychosocial support is, import is important. So patients need to be advised on cognitive strategies, given assistance with financial planning, and providing help with practical assistance if that's needed. There are two charities, Age UK and Age Concern, um, who can be very useful in helping advise patients about these things. And it's also important to remember carers. Support for carers is essential and they should have their own assessment and they should be given information about carers support groups. So you've, uh, I see you've used the management uh, sort of structure there of biopsychosocial and in the biological you mentioned cholinesterase inhibitors and because there's a lot of, been a lot of talk about cholinesterase inhibitors in the media recently about their cost-benefit analysis and, and are they actually efficacious enough because they're quite expensive, they're new, reasonably new expensive medications and you say that they, they, just, they just delay the progression of the, the condition, is that right? That's right, although I might correct you on that because some of the drugs have been taken off patent recently so they're actually becoming really very cheap. Although, given the number of people with dementia, if you look on a population level, then obviously it, they can be quite expensive. So if they do just delay the progression of the condition, how do you know when to stop treating them? Because Is there a window or something like that? This is, in a sense, the million-dollar question. So for some people, they will get an improvement in their symptoms okay. when they take them. Other people, they don't get an improvement but things don't get worse so it seems to stabilise the condition and in some people they might get a little bit worse but this will be a less severe decline than if they weren't on medication. There are times when you would stop medication for example if somebody is having side effects from the tablets or if their cognitive function has dropped a lot 
and really they seem to be getting very little benefit at all from them. But usually we'd aim to continue the tablets, um, but review them regularly to make sure that that's appropriate. And although it might delay progression, that could actually make quite a significant clinical difference to somebody. For example, it might mean that they can stay in their own home and function relatively independently rather than needing extra care or institutional care. So that has a benefit for the patient, but there's also population benefits to that if we're delaying the risk of institutionalisation. Right, and that's really helpful to get that because it's quite a difficult cut off in a way, isn't it? Yes. And it'll push you a bit because uh, there's other pharmacological management as well that people have, have, have well, are uh, undecided about, shall we say, which is the use of antipsychotic medication in people with behaviourally disturbed um, presentations of dementia. And uh, there are people who are very against the use of maybe sedative antipsychotic medication what do you think the pros and cons of, of, of that are in people with advanced dementia? In people with advanced dementia, behavioural disturbance can be very difficult to manage. It can make patients vulnerable, um, it can make them very aggressive, so they're a danger to other people. And in those situations, although you can use expert nursing care and other non-pharmacological management strategies, sometimes that doesn't work. And sometimes you do need to think about using medication to calm people down. Antipsychotic medication has been used as a sedative medication, and that can be helpful for people. However, there's a lot of evidence now that using antipsychotic medication in people with dementia is actually not all that helpful as a long-term behavioural strategy, and more importantly that it leads to increased cardiovascular disease and increases mortality. So in fact it can be very dangerous for people. Now before clinicians start antipsychotic medication there should really be a very careful discussion with um, patients and their relatives about whether or not this is appropriate. And if it is used, it should be used at the lowest possible doses for a short time, so a couple of weeks and then stopped. It's not something that we should use now as part of long-term care. Thank you for that. That's, that's very helpful. So, I mean, thinking about dementia as an advancing condition and um, the, well, the increasing difficulty that it, we have in managing uh, these sorts of patients, what, what are the risks that are associated with, with managing people with dementia? There are many risks to consider, although whether they're relevant will depend on the stage of dementia and on the individual patient. Things to consider are self-neglect, disinhibition and aggressive behaviour. For some people, wandering might be a problem, so people leaving the house at night and putting them in vulnerable situations. And driving needs to be considered because that can be a risk for the patient and for other road users. You should also think about risk from carers. Now, although this is very rare, it does happen and it's important to keep it in mind. So carer abuse and financial abuse are things to look out for in the rare occasions that it happens. Thank you, Charlotte. Well, we've come to the end of our podcast today. We've gone through a brief overview of the presentation of the different, well, the main different types of dementia and 
some of the causes and the, the principles of assessment and management. So thank you for that. I'm very aware that we've only covered the, the basic information about dementia. So what resources would you recommend for further information for those interested? For a more detailed discussion, I'd recommend the Shorter Oxford Textbook of Psychiatry or the Oxford Textbook of Old Age Psychiatry, which has got a, a lot of detailed information in. It might also be helpful for listeners to look at the latest NICE guidelines on use of medication and to look at the British Association of Psychopharmacology guidelines on anti-dementia medication. Finally, Health Talks Online has got some very good interviews, particularly with carers, and I think understanding the carer's perspective gives a good insight into how medical professionals might best help patients. So I'd also recommend that Health Talks Online site as well. Well, thank you. That sounds like a good list of resources for those interested. Thank you again, Charlotte, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in and listening to another episode of the Oxford University podcast series in psychiatry. Please do listen to another. Goodbye.